and welcome. I'm Uri. And I'm Rifki. And you're listening to Talking Tachlis, the podcast where we talk about Jewish life and life in general. So how was your Chag, Uri? How were all of your Chagim? They were very nice. How about you? Good. Feels like it was nonstop. We're finally in a, uh, I don't know, on the one hand, I'm like, oh, back to like the grind, you know, so to speak. But on the other hand, I'm like, good. Back to a regular routine. Yeah, I'm ready. Ready for for fall? Ready for fall. Ready for more Talking Tachlis. (laughs) Yeah, all of it. I think we should start off with our, our weekly Ben and Jerry's update. What do you think? How could we not? That's why people tune in. Of course. I assume our listeners have been following this story, but it's funny. Somebody pointed out to me um, over Sukkot that the Jewish Link, which is the like the Teaneck local Jewish mm-hmm. paper, had the Ben and Jerry story as front page news for like four weeks straight. And <laughs> it's it's funny how, and we do the same thing, how like stories that are like very central to our thinking are not necessarily, are oftentimes not central to most other people's thinking or even most other people might not right. even be aware of them, but it's like front page news for a month straight in the Jewish uh, Teaneck newspaper. <laughs> so the, the big updates in the Ben and Jerry's situation, debacle, fiasco, are that now a number of states in the U.S. are actually divesting from Unilever, which is the parent company of Ben and Jerry's. And I was personally very surprised to see that. I was not expecting this to have such big ramifications. I'm personally, I think, happy with that result, even though I do think it's somewhat complicated. I mean, Rifki, what are your thoughts about this? I don't think I really know enough about it. My understanding is, and just for for those of us like me who do not kind of think in this uh, finance jargon, basically what it means is different states, the same way uh, individual people, you might have uh, stock in this company, that company, or you might have general bonds or, you know, things like that. Um, A couple, a bunch of states have have millions and millions invested in different companies, probably billions. um, And these states have millions invested in Unilever specifically. And at the same time as these states are invested in these companies, these states also have rules and laws on the books that if these companies do certain things, they are they're going to pull those stocks, right? They're going to pull that. And that's what divestment means, right? So, uh, for example, New Jersey had $182 million invested in Unilever and is pulling that out or maybe already pulled that out, basically, because a state law that was passed in 2016 prohibited the investment of state pension funds in businesses that engaged in boycotts. That's, I think, the just the big picture understanding. So it is kind of crazy to think that I don't know the history of how these laws came about, but it's crazy to think that there really is serious economic repercussions. You know, we talk about <laughs> all these people are like, I'm going to stop buying Ben and Jerry's. And I'm not saying they should or shouldn't. People should, you know, make principal decisions about the, the the finances and their own pocketbook. But Unilever and Ben and Jerry's, by extension, really is going to be hurt if they already haven't felt it by, by these states, much more so than individual actors. Right. And, and to, just to specify, as you mentioned, New Jersey, um, Arizona, mm-hmm. I don't know if the money's actually come out yet, but they said it's going to come out unless Unilever uh, changes its policy. And Florida, Illinois, New York, Texas, all either have already um, taken action or threatened that they will take action unless Unilever um, stops its boycott. And so a lot of these states, as you mentioned, have rules that they won't invest in companies that are boycotting. I don't think it's just any boycott, boycotting Israel specifically. And in the wording of these anti-BDS rules, it says specifically not just 
Israel, but the territories also, because that's what this boycott ended up being of Ben and Jerry's. They said, we're going to continue to sell in Israel, just not in the territories. And, and, that, and these states still divested. I think, I mean, I've seen people say like, this is hypocrisy, or like, if you're against BDS, because you're because boycotts are bad, you're just doing what they're doing, you're boycotting the boycotters. So you're just as bad as as them. I don't really buy that argument, because I don't think anybody would say boycotts are never good. They just don't agree with BDS because they don't think it's warranted against Israel. And if a company is going to boycott Israel, then a lot of people don't want to have anything to do with that company. I think that's perfectly reasonable. I guess we'll have to see how this plays out. I don't know. I I also saw that like um, Universal Studios in Florida had like a big Ben and Jerry's um, store in their park and that closed down and was switched to a Haagen-Dazs. And I saw people like on Facebook celebrating that. (laughs) <laughs> that switch. Oh, that's interesting. Do they make a statement about it? I don't think so, but I think people were implying that it had something to do with this. Yeah, but knowing the internet, it might have happened five years ago. And- maybe, <laughs> maybe. Who knows? But I do think it's important that it's not just about Ben and Jerry's. It's about other companies, maybe who are thinking about doing something similar and seeing what the you know repercussions might be if they if they do that. Um, I just I just want to add that I literally just googled. Universal Studios, Florida, Ben and Jerry's Haggadahs, and there's an article from March about how that they're switching over. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So, the internet, lying again. Happy (laughs) coincidence. Ice cream, ice cream, what's your favorite flavor? Chocolate. 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 Ice cream, ice cream, What's your favorite flavor? Vanilla. 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 Ice cream. On the topic of Israel, Rifki, why don't we get into our main topic for today? Perfect. Perfect. So as you already know, and I'm sure as most of our listeners know, two weeks ago, the U.S. House of Representatives voted overwhelmingly to give $1 billion to Israel for its Iron Dome missile defense system. This $1 billion is meant to replace missile interceptors, which Israel used to stop rockets that were fired from Gaza during the May conflict between Israel and Hamas. Originally, this money had been part of a broader spending bill, until objections from some of the most liberal Democratic members of the House forced the Democratic leaders to remove it. But then, basically, some of the senior members from the Democratic Party were pretty annoyed by that, and they said, okay, screw that, we're going to make it its own bill, and also... Um, put it through the U.S. House of Representatives. And basically, these uh, progressive uh, Democratic members got totally screwed because the measure ended up passing by 420 to 9, with two members voting present, which means neither yes nor no. Uh, And now the measure has been sent to the Senate, where the leaders have not actually yet scheduled a vote. So, Uri, even though it ended up passing with overwhelming support, right, 420 to 9, I want to reiterate, those numbers are crazy. The whole kerfuffle and the removal of the Iron Dome funding from the larger spending bill really angered centrist Democrats. And it led vocal Republicans to, as you could imagine, label the party as anti-Israel. Of course, the moderate Democrats tried to poo-poo these claims and say that actually support for Israel is just as strong as bipartisan as it's been for decades. And the Israeli Prime Minister, Naftali Bennett, also tried to downplay the significance. He thanked both parties in the House for their support. And he said in a statement, those who try to challenge the support got a resounding response today. So, Uri, it's been two weeks. We've been able to think about it more. What do you think about this whole event? Um was it a non-starter? Do you think it actually meant anything? Did it actually pretend this this 
epic end of bipartisan American support for Israel? Do you think it's something in between? What do you make of this entire bill? And it's, it's so technical also. It kind of like makes me laugh. It's like trying to like explain what happened. You can't just do a one-liner because like, well, there was a spending bill, which is the like, it's, it's, it is a little bit complicated. What are your thoughts, Ari? Yeah, I mean, 420 to 9 does seem like a pretty big majority, but I do think this is actually pretty significant. And I, Bennett and, and the Israeli leaders were trying to be diplomatic and because their whole thing is we're not going to be divisive like Netanyahu, we're going to bring, bring back right, the bipartisan right, right. support. So they're, they're going to be supportive and they're going to say, no, it's okay, everything's good, everything's fine, but everything is not fine in my opinion. And I don't think that the bipartisan support that Israel used to have, I don't think it's still there, at least the way it used to be. And before we even get into the Iron Dome stuff, I mean, there's a big story this past week with Kamala Harris, not not one of the fringe members of Congress. She's the vice president of the United States. And she was speaking to some students at George Mason University. And uh, let's play a clip of uh, the question that the student asked her and Vice President Harris's response. But then just a few days ago, there were funds allocated to continue backing Israel, which hurts my heart because it's an ethnic genocide and a displacement of people, the same that happened in America. And I'm sure you're aware of this. And I bring this up also because of the issue of how Americans are struggling because of lack of health care, public health care, lack of affordable housing, and all this money ends up going to um, in funding Israel and backing Saudi Arabia and whatnot. And I think that um, the people have spoken very often in what they do need, and I feel like there's a lack of listening, and I just feel like I need to bring this up because it affects my life and people I really care about's lives, and this is just something I have to give up. I'm glad you did. I'm glad you did. And again, this is about the fact that your voice, your perspective, your experience, your truth should not be suppressed. So it's a little bit hard to hear the audio in that clip. They're wearing masks. But basically, the student says that it hurts her heart that the U.S. just allocated all these funds to Israel while Israel is committing an ethnic genocide. And she says that she and many others feel this way. And Harris responds that she's glad that the student raised this issue and her voice and her truth cannot be suppressed. So this immediately sparked uh, controversy and a lot of upset people. And then the Vice President's office immediately went into damage control, but Vice President Harris did not herself make any statement or apology about it. Her office, or maybe she herself called, but in private, called a lot of Jewish um, Democratic Congress people, called Jewish um, organizations to apologize, to say that she still supports Israel. But she, I think it's very telling. She didn't say anything publicly because I, I guess she calculated that would just make things worse. So getting back to the Iron Dome thing, I think it's clear that I'm not saying this is purely a democratic issue, but support for Israel is not what it used to be. And the tolerance for, I would say, illegitimate and demonizing criticism of Israel, you know, Harris didn't say it herself, but she congratulated or, or praised somebody who did say it, or at least did not speak out against it, which is not the same thing as her saying it herself, but it says something. So, with, I mean, with the Iron Dome stuff, I think it's scary. I, I don't know. I think this is a, a sign of where things are heading. I think the Democratic leadership that, again, like did like the damage control and made sure that the bill passed um, very quickly, they're, who is it? Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, they're 
very old and they're going to retire soon. And who are the ones who were against it? The squad. They're the youngest members of Congress. They're the up and coming people. I think it's only logical that that is the future of the party, or at least part of the future of the party. And that's where they're standing. I, to me, that's very scary. Do you disagree? Um, I, I kind of disagree. I just don't really see evidence. Like I, I a vote of four twenty to nine, Uri, right? Like that me, and I think it was it was eight Democrats and one Republican. I'm not sure what evidence that shows of a, the party moving in any sort of direction. Like I, I, I think you can make other claims. Like for example, right in May during the whole conflict with Gaza, I think that there was a lot more pushback, which you can, which I think is like a little bit um, hard for us to understand sort of like what it means for the direction that America or the Democratic Party is moving. But this vote of 420 to 9, I I just feel like if anything, it feels like evidence in the other direction. If it were happening in a vacuum, we wouldn't say that like it portends anything, would we? I mean, of course, it doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? Nothing happens in a vacuum. But to me, nothing about what happened shows any sort of evidence that it's actually the party or the country moving in any direction. I'm not, I don't really understand. I understand the fear. And I think that because of this fear, we blow, and when I say we, I mean the larger Jewish community or whatever, like the the community of people who cares about the future of Israel. When something happens, we are so nervous that we immediately think that it's part of some sort of like larger nefarious plot. And maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But I'm not really sure I see why this particular thing... You don't have it to call is. it a like, nefarious plot, more like a, all right, so a, what would you a call concerning it? A trend, to nine vote? A concerning trend. I mean, listen. But it's a 420 to 9 vote. Yeah, Rifty, you, like, you brought to my how, attention. What trend is that? You brought to my attention the, the Sarah Silverman clip. She has a podcast and she spoke about this. So why don't we play the clip from, the, from Sarah Silverman's podcast and then we can discuss that a little bit. You know, I, I, none of them talk about Hamas. No one in the squad is bringing up Hamas. I, I can't. It's so bizarre. Yes, the occupation is not right. There cannot be justice in a place where there are people who have no freedom of movement. But they elected Hamas. Why do do none of them even mention Hamas? A group that until just a few years ago had a mission statement that said, kill all Jews. A group that just congratulated the Taliban for taking over Afghanistan. No, Israel is not good for Palestine. But you are kidding yourself if you think Hamas is good for Palestine. Please do not defund the Iron Dome. I know that it's not, but just just talking to the squad here, you know, my family lives there. It just seems to prove the point that I didn't think existed, which is um, people really only like Jews if they're suffering. Dead Jews get a lot of honor. I want to love them. I really do. I love AOC. I love Rashida Tlaib. I love Ilan Omar. Their domestic policies are completely aligned with mine. And I think they're so cool and kick-ass. But this is really scary. You make it hard. Not having the Iron Dome is going to kill people. So, I mean, Rifki, Sarah Silverman, who is a self-described progressive and has been active in, in the last few uh, you know, presidential campaigns, actively supporting the progressive candidates, she seems to be worried. Are you seeing something that she's not seeing, that you're not worried? 
I mean, maybe. My understanding was that she was saying not that she's worried about the Democratic Party, but that these particular people who voted for it, she's like, hey, generally, I like you. Generally, I agree with you. But I don't feel great that you're doing this thing, that you're trying to support Hamas. Hamas is evil, right? And I kind of agree with everything she's saying. There's a lot that I like, and we talked about this before. There's a lot that I like about some of these people, about you know, and one of the things that really gives me pause and makes me a little nervous is the way that these people think about Israel and the way these people talk about Israel and definitely the way they talk about something like Iron Dome, which feels like kind of like it should be obvious that it's totally appropriate to defend civilian populations from getting rockets rained upon them. But I'm not sure that I mean, maybe I'm misunderstanding. I don't know. I'm not sure that Sarah Silverman is saying, hey, this makes me nervous about the Democratic Party. Do you think that's what she's saying? I think what she's saying is that this group of politicians that she's been very supportive of in the past and she identifies with and thought she was on the same page with them, she's now realizing that on this thing, on this issue of life or death for her family that is very important to her, she feels very betrayed by the squad. And they're not just any random Congress people. They're people that she specifically admires. Yeah, and I, I think I hear all of that. The, the the part that's giving me pause, and I don't want to, we don't need to beat a dead horse, but the part that gives me pause is the argument that that means something bigger about the Democratic Party. I just don't see that. And do you I, not? So do you I, not think the squad is like the future of the party or where things are heading, where so the younger generation that's, I think, is? That's, the interesting question, right? Because right now, they really don't have that much power, right? They're, except that they are really famous, except that so, they have yeah, a So yeah, how do you define of, power? <laughs> well, I mean, literal there, their social couple, media yeah, influence a is a type ways. of power uh sure in a way i mean at the at the same time you can make the opposite the opposite argument right that like as much as many twitter followers as they have it means nothing because what they can do is try to pull it out of the bill and think they're being so clever and then there are only nine votes including by the way Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, right, AOC, who we talk about all the time, she didn't even end up voting, right? How much support could they possibly have when they couldn't even all of them get together on one page? And we could could talk more about about her, and I'm not really sure why she voted against it. And I think her letter did not make it clear. And of course, we'll include the link to her full letter uh, where she tried to explain why she voted present and did not vote no. Um, I, I don't think it it didn't didn't clarify things to me. It seemed to me like she should have voted no based on her, her principles. I don't know. Um, but to me, I just I think really at the end of the day, what what I find upsetting about this story and I, I, I don't really know if it what it means for five years down the line, 10 years down the line, 15 years down the line for either the Democratic Party or for the future of America. I don't know. But I do find it a little bit, I guess, both confusing and upsetting when progressive members of the U.S. House of Representatives do things like this, right? Like, how does, let's say they won. Let's say Iron Dome didn't exist. Let's say, or not Iron Dome didn't exist. Let's say America didn't fund, you know, replacing these missiles. First of all, Israel would find the money no matter what, right? right? And to even just clarify how this foreign aid works, right? This foreign aid doesn't even, it's not like America is just handing over billions of dollars to Israel. What America is doing is giving this money to Israel, calling it military aid, and then Israel is using that money to buy weapons from America, which are then going to re- uh, stock their arsenal. Right. It's basically right. supporting uh, the American economy. Right, right, right. So like, that's I, maybe that's also why they don't love the idea of it, because they're like, oh, so now right. it's like this whole military industrial complex. Right, sure. Right. But th- what, what I think upsets me about it, what, what throws me off is like, 
what's the point? Like, does something, if this, if this bill actually lost in Congress, right? If the U.S. House of Representatives says, absolutely not, we're not funding this, do Palestinians' lives get better? Like, of course Palestinian lives don't get better. I want Palestinian lives to get better. But Sarah Silverman, I think the way she said it was so perfect. It's like, what about Hamas? How come the squad doesn't talk about Hamas? How come Rashida Tlaib doesn't stand up there and introduce new bills that will help the Palestinian people, right? Introducing a bill that's going to not fund Iron Dome does not help the Palestinian people. It feels completely just performative and silly, and it makes me sad. It feels like these people over and over and over have been used as pawns. Palestinian people are being used as pawns, and it makes me upset. And again, I think I'm pretty pro-Israel. I think I'm pretty pro People in general, I'm anti-Hamas. I feel comfortable saying that. I just, I feel like these people are never going to catch a freaking break. And making a bill saying we're not going to fund Iron Dome doesn't help them. Right. I mean, I, I th- that's why I think Sarah Silverman was so brave for what she said, because what she said was very heartfelt and real and painful, I, th- I think, for her to say, because she's saying these people that I love so much and I agree with so much of what they say, I don't understand why they're saying this. That's the problem with politicians. And this goes mm-hmm. basically for all politicians. Like, you never know why they're saying what they're saying. You know, yeah. it's it's usually related in, in the best case scenario. It's related to what they believe in. But there's all kinds of calculations and all kinds of things. And like, you know, I, I don't know if the, if the members of the squad um, really think that Iron Dome is a terrible, horrible thing in itself. Or is it a part of a bigger calculation? They just don't want to help Israel. Or like they want to give the Iron Dome funding. But like some of them were saying, but we this was rushed through. We should have a discussion first. First, let's talk about the human rights abuses. And then we'll give the Iron Dome, you know, something like that. Right. But why, why don't we play and, the and clip? And I just want to, I yeah. want to add, before, before we even get there, I just want to add, like, I agree. You want to talk about human rights abuses and you want to talk about actually helping the Palestinian people? I am all for talking about human rights abuses and Palestinian. What happens, right, in the hills outside Hebron, which is not our major topic for this week, but maybe it could be a topic in future weeks, right? I'm sure, or you've been, you saw mm-hmm. what happened on Sukkot, um, where, like, religious uh, settlers, it's, uh, we don't know the full story. It really does seem unclear, but it seems like religious settlers really, they put a little boy in the hospital. They were really, really trying to injure and, and seriously, seriously injure um, Palestinians who were just living in their towns on their land. It's a really, really sad, upsetting story. And talk about that. But taking away Iron Dome, which again, it doesn't, it won't even take away, but taking away funding for Iron Dome does not help those people. That's real. That's, those are people who need your help. I I think there are some other aspects. No, don't be sorry. I think there are other aspects of this that we can get into. But first, why don't we play the clip of Rashida Tlaib, Congresswoman from Michigan, who was one of the people who voted against the the funding. And then immediately afterwards, the response from Congressman Ted Deutsch, also also a Democrat, but uh, vehemently opposed to Rashida Tlaib's stance. I will not support an effort to enable and support war crimes, human rights abuses, and violence. We cannot be talking only about Israelis' need for safety at a time when Palestinians are living under a violent apartheid system and are dying from what Human Rights Watch has said are war crimes. We should also be talking about Palestinian need for security from Israeli attacks. We must be consistent in our commitment to human life, period. Everyone deserves to be safe there. I firmly believe our country must oppose selling weapons to anyone, anywhere, without human rights law compliance. 
The Israeli government is an apartheid regime. Not my words, the words of Human Rights Watch and Israel's own Human Rights Watch organization, Ben Salem. I urge my colleagues, please stand with me in supporting human rights for all. I yield. Uh, Mr. Speaker, I have a speech about how important it is for us to stand up against terror and the terror strikes against Israel launched by the terrorist group Hamas from Gaza. 4,500 rockets that Iron Dome helped us stop. And I have a speech that's all about how important it is for us to replenish that. But Mr. Speaker, I cannot, I cannot allow one of my colleagues to stand on the floor of the House of Representatives and label the Jewish democratic state of Israel an apartheid state. I reject it. Today, this caucus, this body, the House of Representatives will overwhelmingly stand with our ally, the state of Israel, in replenishing this defensive system. If you believe in human rights, if you believe in saving lives, Israeli lives and Palestinian lives, I say to my colleague, who just besmirched our ally, then you will support this legislation. Mr. Speaker, we can have an opportunity to debate lots of issues on the House floor, but to falsely characterize the state of Israel is consistent with those, let's be clear, it's consistent with those who advocate for the dismantling of the one Jewish state in the world. And when there is no place on the map for one Jewish state, that's anti-Semitism. And I reject that. So Deutsch is basically calling Rashida Tlaib an anti-Semite in so many words. Uh, I mean, pretty strong, pretty strong criticism for a member of his own party. What do you think about that, Rifki? Uh, I thought it was kind of a lot. Um, actually, Peter Beinart, who friend of the mm-hmm. show who we've had on before. He actually brought up a great point in his uh, Substack in his like uh, weekly newsletter. Mm-hmm. He he talked like uh, I thought it, it, basically Rashida Talib what she noted was that Human Rights Watch and B'Tselem, B'Tselem is an Israeli internal human rights organization called the Israeli government an apartheid regime, right? This is Human Rights Watch and B'Tselem. And what Deutsch said is, I can't believe my colleague called the state an apartheid state. It's disingenuous, right? Like, maybe she believes it, maybe she doesn't. I mean, I assume she does believe it. But to say, like, oh, I can't believe you said that, you're an anti-Semite, I mean, B'Tselem said it, right? Like, Human Rights Watch said it, right? That, it feels like there's something a little bit subtly nefarious about the—I don't even want to say nefarious. There's something pretty uncomfortable about the way that he set that up, and it makes me a little bit uncomfortable. Now, that having been said— I don't necessarily believe that Israel is an apartheid regime, right? And whether it's an apartheid regime or not, I don't think that means you shouldn't be funding the Iron Dome. But I don't love the way he set that up. Well, yeah. What do you think? We've we've talked about like these uh, buzzwords, for lack of a better term, when it comes to Israel, apartheid, genocide, ethnic cleansing, you know. And those terms are very extreme descriptions, which most people, first of all, the majority of, I think, the people in America would not agree with, people in our government would not agree with. So just to say that there are some radical left-wing Israelis who say that Israel is apartheid, therefore it's okay for anyone in a position of power to say that. I don't think it's so simple. Right. Sure. I mean, but hold on. She cited, she said here, this is what B'Tselem says. 
says, and this is what Human Rights Watch says. And yeah, but she, she also didn't talk about the Iron Dome specifically. She, you know what I mean? Agreed, she's, she's agreed. Twisting she's, the facts and talking about something that's irrelevant to the matter at hand. Well, no, the argument that she's making, and I disagree with her argument. The argument she's making is: Look, this is an, this is a, a government that is evil. The government does evil things. Here are some citations for what they're doing that is evil. And therefore, we shouldn't be funding them at all. We should be having a totally different conversation, right? We should not okay, be and doing so, that. And I think and it's a valid of him, criticism. But instead of Deutsch responding and saying, here's why you're wrong to make that case, and here's why these organizations are wrong to call Israel an apartheid state, instead of responding to the facts, what he said basically is, I can't believe you're so evil to even say something like yes, that. I because, am appalled. It's silly. The whole thing is theater. And it's kind not of what silly. you said before, right? It, Politicians, yeah. they're, 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 it's theatrics. And at the end of the day, no civilians get helped. No civilians get helped by Deutsch playing his games. No civilians get helped by Rashida Tlaib playing, his ga- playing her games, right? At the end of the day, there are victims here. And it's the Palestinian people. Yeah, okay, but Rifki, I, I think you have to understand, and I'm sure you can relate, when Deutsch, you know, says he had a prepared speech, but he just, he was so overwhelmed, he had to just respond to the to the anti-Semitic um, thing that he it was just stated by Rashida Tlaib. It's like, when you hear something that's so outrageous, that's so um, demonizing of your people in, in the Jewish state, like, sometimes it's an emotional reaction. You don't have facts and figures to, to back it up because it's just so obvious that it's outrageous what she just said. Like, and Peter, and you know, it's ironic that, you know, it's the oldest trick in the book when, when anti-Semites quote a Jewish person who says what they say, therefore it's okay. And you know what? Tons of people quote Peter Beinhart for those same things. When Peter Beinhart says, we don't, we no longer need or want a Jewish state, how many people now quote that to say, look, look, a, a Jewish person who wears a kippah says, no, we don't no, no longer want a Jewish state, therefore it's okay for me to say it too. That is not a proof and, and a reason to say that now it's totally fine. That The argument is not, okay, it's totally fine. The argument is you have to actually deal with the substance of what the person is saying. That's it. That's the whole argument. Yeah, I, I agree. It's more substantive response would have been better. I think we should move on a little bit to uh, different takes on this. Um, Michael Oren wrote a very interesting article in Tablet Magazine. He's the former ambassador from Israel to the United States. And he basically said in this article, which we'll include a link for, that maybe this is a wake-up call. Maybe we should rethink the whole U.S. funding of military aid to Israel in the first place. Israel is a, is a self-sufficient country. Their economy is doing great. Their high-tech industry is doing great. Maybe Israel should stop taking aid from America and stop being dependent or subservient to American policy and demands on what Israel can and can't do, can and can't say. And I thought he made a very convincing argument and it makes a lot of sense. Rifki, what were your thoughts on Michael Oren's argument? It was an interesting piece. I definitely understand where he's coming from of seeing like, you know, Israelis, it's not a great feeling to feel like the relationship that you have with another country is like they are the giver and you are the receiver. That being said, I do think it is a lot more complicated, right? I think America and Israel give a lot to each other, right? As we as we mentioned before. Right. As you said, it's not just a one-way street. Israel yeah, does plenty to help America. And, and the, yet, this aid itself m- is also helping America. Right, right. That's true, too. And, you know, Israel helps a lot with, like, counterterrorism and, you know, stuff like that. There's a lot of ways in which they, they also do work together. And Israel and America depends on Israel to be kind of its eyes and ears in the Middle East in a lot of ways. At the same time, Michael Oren's argument of sort of like, oh, then if we don't have, if we have a different relationship with America, it frees us up to do a lot more business with China. Obviously, that makes me a little bit uncomfortable because, you know, China has its own plenty of, uh, you know, difficult human rights abuses. And it's not something that we necessarily want to just dive straight into that new relationship. But I understand that he's he's making an argument that it kind of frees things up and, and mixes things up a little bit. Look, I'm not, Michael Oren is an expert and knows a lot more about 
this. He, he is both uh, has a long academic history and worked in government for a long time. Clearly, he's a lot more knowledgeable about this stuff than I am. I, I really, really am I'm not an expert. Um, but at the end of the day, it doesn't seem to me like this like subservience is as much based in reality as it is based in like a feeling. I think Israelis feel kind of like, we need America supporter. We need America. We need America. We won't be able to do it without America. And he's basically saying like, hey, feel a little pride. We don't need them. We could do this, you know? And I, I don't know. There's something kind of, I kind of like that. You know, I, I kind of like that, like kind of like pride in your culture, in your nation and things like that. I think there, mm-hmm. I, I could see why that would appeal, I guess. What, what do you think about it? Yeah, I, I mean, and I think as you said, in, in so many ways, America also depends on Israel. So maybe if Israel stopped taking the money, which they probably don't really need e- anyway, then next time that there's something like this, America will actually come to Israel and say, hey, we need your help. And that'll become public. And then it'll be more clear to people that Israel is really helping out America in a lot of ways. So, I mean, something else that I wanted to bring up in relation to this conversation is I was listening to um, another friend of the show, uh, Yossi Klein Halevi, mm-hmm. who it has a does a podcast with Hartman called For Heaven's Sake. Mm-hmm. And they were talking about this topic. And he made a very interesting point. Um, Jesse Klein Levy did. And he said, there's been so much focus in this debate um, on the fact that this is a purely defensive system, that the Iron Dome is just protecting civilians. So how could you possibly vote against that? How could you not want to help civilians? So much emphasis on the fact that Iron Dome is purely defensive. So what mm-hmm. happens next time a bill comes up that is not purely defensive, but is for also for things that Israel really needs, like planes and tanks and guns and whatever, but things that can be used offensively also, you're not going to have that argument anymore. And if that is the argument that everybody is relying on right now for this, what's going to happen down the line when Israel needs other kinds of military aid that are not purely defensive? And I think that was a good point. And that kind of relates back to the Michael Oren thing. Like maybe we have Israel has to start thinking about being more self-sufficient and not relying on America because of these elements in the Democratic Party that are very hostile to Israel and any kind of aid to Israel defensive and especially non-defensive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't I don't think that's a crazy thought. And to the truth is, I, I also just want to, you know, add for the record that if there was a debate on the House floor about giving offensive, quote unquote, weapons or selling offensive, quote unquote, weapons or military aid, again, aid is kind of a misnomer, but giving aid to Israel for guns and for ammo and for jets or whatever, stuff like that. Like, I think that's a, a fair argument. I know where I would fall on that side, but I don't think that that's an out-of-bounds argument fair to Fair argument get. to say that it, we shouldn't give it? I'm saying if people want to make the case that you shouldn't do that for Israel mm-hmm. or for other countries, whatever, I think that's a fair argument. Again, that's probably not where I would fall out, but I think that is an appropriate argument to be had. Meaning, you could argue about the Iron Dome also, but I think it's really obvious or to me, feels like it should be very obvious that defensive weapons should be treated differently, right? Like right. we are, a country trying to defend itself should fall in, in a different category. Yes, I mean, yes and no. Yes, it's different. But if if we agree that Israel needs to defend itself and sometimes defending yourself means having guns and ways of like shooting back, not just knocking down rockets... Uh, you know, then it's, it's. I don't think it's so simple to say. Uh, I, I, I hear. I thought he made a very good point that if this is the def- the argument that where everybody's making right now, we might be stuck down the mm-hmm. line. 
Yeah, I, I hear that. And and I also, by the way, Rifki, just to, to go with what you to respond to what you were just saying about like we should ha- be able to have a discussion. I totally agree. I, I don't think when it comes to these matters that it's beyond the realm of discussion that like it's so clear that Israel is right and Palestinians are wrong and therefore even just bringing up the question is anti-Semitic or whatever. I, I definitely don't think that. But the problem is it's so hard to have these conversations or for these conversations to happen in, in Congress and whatever because the people on the quote-unquote other side of the squad, whatever, they're not being reasonable and, and like they're they're using terms that just shut down the conversation and weapon they use these weaponized terms like apartheid and genocide and ethnic cleansing and when those are the terms that you're using there's nothing to talk about and so it's not possible to have a rational discussion when you're when you're dealing with that kind of thing and like i just want to read a, a tweet from ilhan omar this was back in june i guess um after the the may conflict okay on june 7th Um, Congresswoman Ilan Omar tweets the following, We must have the same level of accountability and justice for all victims of crimes against humanity. We have seen unthinkable atrocities committed by the U.S., Hamas, Israel, Afghanistan, and the Taliban. So how could you possibly have a conversation with somebody like that who is equating the U.S. and Israel with Hamas and the Taliban? It's not, I really don't think it's possible. I I hear what you're saying, Uri, and I totally agree that using these not just these buzzwords of apartheid or genocide, whatever, things like that. I think they're incredibly unhelpful. And I think they they dissuade people from wanting to even talk to you because it's exactly what you're saying. You come across as totally unreasonable. But I do think it would be so powerful. And we talk about this all the time. If instead of Ted Deutsch saying, I'm so angry, you're clearly an anti-Semite. If instead he stood up and said, look, I understand what you're trying to say, and I understand that there could be a conversation had, but you using that language is so offensive to me and so unhelpful. Let's have an actual conversation. Let's actually talk about what defensive measures, what defensive spending should look like. What, like, I, I think that could be so much more meaningful. But to say like they're using buzzwords so we can't talk to them, he's using buzzwords too. And politicians suck. They, they suck on the left. They suck on the right. It, they, they speak in extreme ways and don't actually do anything. And I'm going to cut. I'm beating a dead horse one more time. They don't actually, in in this situation, but in so many situations, they don't actually do anything that's actually going to help real people. All right, yeah, I'll get off I my, guess my high I'll horse agree, now. I'll agree with that one. All right, well, this is a, a fiery topic, and of course, there's so much more to say. Um, And as always, the conversation does not end with just us. Please, please, please be in touch with us. Shoot us an email at talkingtachlesspodcast at gmail.com. And of course, join the conversation on our Facebook page. We're actually recording this on Monday, October 4th. Facebook was down all day, but it seems like it just came back up. So uh, you can rejoin, hopefully, if, if it's actually working out, the conversation there. Thanks, as always, to Drive-In Productions. They are the sponsor of this week's episode. And thank you to Triple Threat Trio featuring Rage Brigade. They are the official band of Talking Topless. Bye, everyone. Bye, gesund. <laughs> <laughs>